This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. Many saw the war in the occupied territories as inevitable. Many were afraid that the attack by Hamas would lead to a disproportionate response by Israel's military, as is so often the case, and that any attack from Gaza would lead to increased fighting in the West Bank, which it has. Now, with Hezbollah launching missiles from Lebanon and Israel retaliating, forcing 13,000 Lebanese to evacuate their homes, with Israeli airstrikes behind the bombing of an airport in Syria, plus strong words of opposition from Iran, many now fear the war may become regional or may even lead to World War III. It's as if the most dissenting opinion today is peace. We've been told by Israeli Defense Ministry spokespeople that support for a ceasefire is actually support for Hamas. Yes, peace means supporting terrorists. Meanwhile, the Western media is working hard to manufacture consent for Israel's ongoing siege of Gaza, even after Israel told Gazans to flee south, only to discover that the south around Rafah was also being targeted by Israeli bombing. This morning's headlines report that Israel is stepping up its bombardment of Gaza, which would seem impossible judging by the devastating images of destruction we are seeing from the region. Today we will be discussing if peace does have a chance in the raging Israeli-Palestinian war when we have the return of writer, activist, and political commentator Phyllis Bennis, who recently posted the article, As Israel and Gaza Erupt, the U.S. Must Commit to Ending the Violence, All the Violence at the Hill. She also posted, Both Israelis and Palestinians are victims of Israel's apartheid system, which was posted at Inside Sources. Phyllis is an Institute for Policy Studies fellow, where she directs the new internationalism project focusing on the Middle East, U.S. militarism, and U.N. issues. She's also a fellow of the Transnational Institute in Amsterdam, which has also been featured on our show regularly. Find out more about the Institute at ipc-dc.org and follow them on x at ipc underscore DC. Uh, Phyllis helped found the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights in 2001 and more recently spent six years on the board of Jewish Voice for Peace, where she now serves as an international advisor. Jewish Voice for Peace can be found online at jewishvoiceforpeace.org and on X at JVP Live. Phyllis works with many anti-war and Palestinian rights organizations, writing and speaking widely across the United States and around the world. She has served as an informal advisor to several top UN officials on Middle East issues and was twice shortlisted, shortlisted to become the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in the Occupied Palestinian Territory. Phyllis has written and edited 11 books. Among uh, her latest is the seventh updated edition of Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict, a primer, which was published in 2018. You can follow Phyllis on X at Phyllis Venice. Phyllis has been on This Is Hell several times in the past. Her most recent appearance was in 2018 when we discussed the IPS report, The Soul of Black Folks. Sorry. Sorry. 
the souls of poor folk, auditing America 50 years after the Poor People's Campaign challenged racism, poverty, the war economy, and militarism, and our national morality, which you can find at thisishell.com when searching on Phyllis's name. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, my mind's all over the place this morning for some reason. How was your past weekend? Uh, it was awesome. Uh, went camping out in the Driftless area. Made a home base at uh, Wyalusing State Park, which has an excellent view of the confluence of the Wisconsin and Mississippi rivers. Very cool. Were there a lot of people out there? Uh, you know, yeah, there were some leaf peepers around, but not as there busy as, as leaf peepers. <laughs> okay, yes. uh, but there weren't as many as there are in the summertime. Uh, also checked out Effigy Mounds. Um, it's a NPS site, National Park Service site, just on the Iowa side of the Mississippi. An indigenous burial mound? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, Eastern Woodlands culture. Um, it's a it's a it's a whole complex of burial mounds. Oh, crazy! Very, very interesting. Wow. And so you camp nearby those. Obviously, you're not camping on that. Line. Yeah. No, we were in Wyalusing. They don't. I don't think they have any mounds there, but. Um, the payoff at Wyalusing is this, it's on a really tall bluff overlooking uh, these two rivers coming together. It's very cool. A friend of mine has a great story about visiting uh, burial mounds and then all of a sudden a lightning storm starting and suddenly somebody stole his car. So <laughs> maybe I'll share that with you yeah. on Patreon this week because it's I pretty, pretty hilarious. I have a quick correction from Phyllis. Yeah. Um, the correct website domain is yeah. ips dash doc dot org dash doc dot org yes why do i always get this website wrong i'm not kidding you i <laughs> i have so many times i have uh copy and pasted this from their website into my page and into my script and somehow i always get it wrong so their website again uh tell us it one more time there uh will ips dash doc doc dot org dot org all right thank you very much so my weekend was frustrating i spent so much time all of last week helping my non-wife prepare to go back downstate to care for her ailing father i ended up having to do all of my regular daily work for the show all weekend long and after doing all that work i discovered early monday morning that in fact that was not all the work I needed to do, as I was made aware that our scheduled guest had a couple other articles on the very same subject we would be discussing, which I needed to read prior to our conversation on the elections in Ecuador, because unbelievably, I don't have that great of a historical context when it comes to Ecuador. So despite all the work I did over the weekend that kept me from having a weekend, it still wasn't enough to do Monday's interview, and thus the show. Luckily, our guest has kindly agreed to reschedule and will be on tomorrow's show. On top of all that, I have to do the stuff my non-wife usually does around the house and within our division of labor. That includes her caring for our two cats. From a distance, feeding cats always look like a cute and mutually loving experience. But now that I'm feeding these monsters, I realize that getting them their food is a lot more annoying than it appears to be from the outside. One of the two cats is 21 years old this month and apparently deaf and blind, or it's just a jerk who pretends that she can't see or hear me and is constantly kvetching. I, I, I assume she wants to be fed, but offering food does not stop her repeated screeching which appears to be aimed directly at me. So yeah, a frustrating weekend of me working my ass off to make certain I could do an interview that needed to be rescheduled and having to put up with cats that until this weekend I found adorable. 
It was like driving a car and speeding up to make a green light, only to slam on the brakes as it suddenly turns red. Worse yet, other than taking out the garbage, I never stepped outside the house the entire weekend. I didn't even notice I'd been indoors all weekend until Sunday night, a realization that in hindsight is more depressing than actually staying indoors for three freaking days. But Will, more important than my frustrating weekend entirely spent indoors, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is quite hellish, Chuck. It is very hellish. <laughs> this week's question from hell is how will you celebrate former President Trump's re-election in 2024? <laughs> we are not in any way endorsing or supporting President Trump's re-election. Absolutely not. That's why it's the question from hell. We will share your question from hell answers as posted at Patreon coming up after our talk with Phyllis on what is taking place in Gaza and Israel. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Will has this week's hangover cure. I do, but first, another correction of the URL. <laughs> I'm telling you, apparently man. Phyllis, uh, you know, made a typo too. All right. It's ips-dc.org, correct? Correct. IPS-DC.org. I knew that didn't sound correct. <laughs> IPS-DC.org. I'm telling you, that's where their website is. Will, what's this week's hangover cure? This Other week- than getting the <laughs> URL for their website correct. <laughs> this week's hangover cure is don't age. Real simple. I'm feeling this one physically. Uh, Realsimple.com had an article in September with the headline, This is why your hangovers feel even worse with age. Experts say it's not in your head. Hangovers hit harder as you get older. Real simple questions gastroenterologist David Kahana saying, As we age, our bodies become less efficient at metabolizing alcohol. Age-related changes in liver function and overall health can also contribute. Aging involves a gradual decline in our body's resilience and ability to recover from stressors and reduced ability to bounce back from the effects of alcohol. And here I was hoping that once I retired, I could drink myself silly and get drunk all day and all night long. Apparently not. Now you drink yourself sore. Yes, it's true. (laughs) Um, Dr. Cabana adds, aging can also impact the body's ability to maintain proper hydration levels. Alcohol is a diuretic, and when combined with age-related changes in water retention, it can lead to more dehydration and an intensifying hangover. That makes this hangover, this week's hangover cure, do not age. Age-related changes in water retention. I feel seen. From now on, that's what I'm going to say if we're like driving down a road and I need to go to the bathroom, I'm going to look over my uh, girly and just say to her, hey, you know, I think I'm having an age-related change in water (laughs) retention right now. (laughs) Sounds like a, a, a... A uh, question they might ask trying to shill a product on, like, daytime TV TV? advertising. Oh, yeah, yeah. Are you having age-related changes in water retention? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Last week, we mentioned an email we got from someone by the name of Neural Damage. And as somebody who does have optic nerve damage, I hope Neural Damage is simply the email writer's moniker and not their condition. Uh, Neural Damage wrote to tell us, First of all, what an incredible incredible program. I recently stumbled upon it and have been proselytizing to my friends. But Neural Damage adds, this is hell is extremely quiet. I subscribe to dozens of podcasts, but this is the only one that's inaudible unless I crank the volume all the way up. 
So this comes up every so often, and whenever we look into it, it seems the problems are on the user's end and not ours due to a number of reasons that are out of our control. Or at least we thought. Rob H. is a longtime listener. In fact, several years ago, my back went out, as it is in the process of doing right now, and I was unable to do the show for a week. I mentioned it on air, and Rob very kindly ordered, purchased, and had delivered to me the very comfortable armchair I'm sitting in right now. This office chair is absolutely spectacular. No, this is not an advertisement for whatever chair I am sitting in at this moment, so I can become some kind of secret pay-to-play influencer. But it is an advertisement for how awesome Rob is, and when Rob writes, we read it. With neural damage, uh, while neural damage seems to be having consistent issues with our show's volume, Rob writes, hey Chuck, everything is always fine with the show's audio quality. But I believe it was the episode with Open Democracy columnist Chrissy Stroop when I experienced a low-volume issue. I often listen to your podcast on a group of seven speakers placed throughout my house so I can listen while I clean or cook or just hang out. With Chrissy's episode, I struggled to hear it with the water running or the sound of the veggies I was sautéing, and the speakers and podcast app each were individually at 100% volume. That's the only issue I've run into within, with, like, in years. Hope all is well, Rob. Rob, we looked into it, and yes, there was a volume issue that has been addressed uh, during the Chrissy Stroop interview, so that will not happen again. If anyone ever has any issue with the sound quality of This Is Hell, whether it's the over-the-air broadcast on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, Lumpen Radio, on WLPN 105.5 FM on Chicago Southside, Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho on KRFP 90.3 FM, CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, or BewareTheRadio.com out of London, England, or if you listen at ThisIsHell.com or to our stream or any of our affiliate streams and you have any audio issue whatsoever, please tell us. Email Chuck at ThisIsHell.com like Neural Damage and Rob did, or message us via FBook. Leave a comment at our Welcome to the Hellhole FBook group page. Contact us via X, nay, Twitter, or join us in our Discord community and tell us if you are having any issue with our sound quality. And when you're doing that in Discord, do that under the general category. And you should go to general category in our Discord community right now because Hugh posted a link to the Black Gold Tapestry. If you are like me, you've never heard of the Black Gold Tapestry, let alone seen it. Black Gold Tapestry is Sandra Sawatsky's contemporary work of art dramatizing the saga of oil through 220 feet of hand embroidery. It is out of this world. So if you are having any problem hearing our show, contact us. No matter how you contact us uh, or what it's about, we will likely share whatever you write on air. And if you want to see Sandra Savatsky's 220 feet of hand embroidery dramatizing the saga of oil, join the This Is Hell Discord community or just go to theblackgoldtapestry.com because it is really cool and some version of it would make a great addition to the art show that always accompanies our annual anniversary party or a great raffle prize during the annual party. Coming up, 
the Gaza violence, Gaza-Israel violence must stop now. We'll share some of your answers to our most recent question from hell. We will uh, tell you what happened during our most recent bonus Patreon podcast, which is available at patreon.com slash this is hell. And we'll share what's happening later this week on the show. We will also have this week in Rotten History following our guest, and we need your help. This is Hell is taking on big radio and corporate funded podcasts, and we are completely listener supported, so we cannot do that without you. We'll tell you how you can help out your friends at This Is Hell and get more people to know about this show you love, but everybody in the media hates. Live from the United States, where the press has the freedom to be propaganda, this is hell if you have been watching the news coverage on the fighting in Israel and the occupied territories, especially in Gaza, trying to figure out what is accurate information as opposed to disinformation, misinformation, or patently false rumors. That's been very difficult. But what does seem to be clear, at least from everything I've seen, there is no end in sight for the ongoing mass killing. Peace does not seem to be an option. And our only choice is more war. Here to help us determine what chances peace has in the ongoing conflict between Israel and seemingly all of its neighbors returning to This Is How, writer, activist, and political commentator Phyllis Bennis recently posted the Hill article as Israel and Gaza erupt. The U.S. must commit to ending the violence, all the violence, and the uh, article that was over at Inside Sources. Both Israelis and Palestinians are victims of Israel's apartheid system. Phyllis, welcome back to This Is Hell. It's been far too long since you've been on the show. Great to be with you, Mitch. It's great to have you back on the show. So it, it is, this is the thing that we're being told right now by Israeli Defense Force spokespeople, that, is, that supporting a, a ceasefire is supporting Hamas, that it is a victory for Hamas. Does a ceasefire, would a ceasefire, in your opinion, would that benefit Hamas any more than it does Israel? Is that a victory for Hamas? A ceasefire is crucial because people's lives are at stake. There are 2.2 million people who live in Gaza. The vast majority of them, more than 2 million people, more than 2.1 million people, more than almost 2.2 million people are not fighters. They are the ones who are suffering. Will some fighters maybe survive also who might have other been, otherwise been killed? Maybe. That's okay with me if the civilians do not get killed. That's the question. How many civilians have to die? How many babies have to die? You know, this is a long-standing tradition, uh, almost a rule, let's say, uh, for U.S. policymakers, when Israel is involved, ceasefire becomes a toxic word. We saw this back in 2006, Condoleezza Rice at the United Nations saying when there was an international call for a ceasefire in the war that was that was looming and that was then being carried out between Israel and, and Lebanon. And her line was, we don't need a ceasefire yet, which really means not enough people have died yet. More people have to die before we can call it a ceasefire. The same thing happened a few years later in 2008 and 9, when Israel was carrying out what they called Operation Cast Lead in Gaza, uh, in, in that at the end of the Bush administration, the beginning of the Obama administration. And the, the call again was for a ceasefire. And the answer again was, we don't need a ceasefire yet. We heard it in 2014 during the three-week war that killed 2,200 
Palestinians across Gaza. We heard it in 2018. We heard it in 2021. <clears throat> One of the differences, I think, that we should recognize in 2021, when there was another escalation in Israeli violence towards Palestinians in Gaza, horrific bombings that were destroying homes, destroying infrastructure and killing people. And there was a call for a ceasefire globally. And the now Biden administration was saying, nope, we don't need a ceasefire yet. But this time there was some opposition. So you had 12 Jewish members of Congress of the House who sent a letter to Biden. They were all Democrats. So it was to their own president saying there must be a ceasefire. 25 senators, also Democrats, sent a letter saying, we need a ceasefire. You must call for a ceasefire. And perhaps most interesting, most significant in some ways, my personal favorite here, there were 500 former staffers of the Biden-Harris campaign. You know, these are the people who get a job for every election. They work to run the state campaign or the city campaign, whatever it is. They're the ones who really put these people in office, right? And they have to get a new job every year or maybe every two years when the new elections are happening. They have to sell themselves as the people who can deliver the votes. And so what was significant about that, aside from it being so big, 20, you know, 500 members of, the, of that campaign staff that signed on to an extraordinary letter that talked about the legacy of what was then 73 years of Israeli oppression of Palestinians. It was a very powerful letter. But it also meant that those 500 campaign experts had made the judgment that supporting Palestinian rights and opposing Israeli violations of international law and human rights was no longer political suicide, that it would not prevent them from getting a job the following election cycle. So that was huge. It was a really important example of how the discourse, how the narrative is shifting in this country. And I think it's really important that we remember that because it means there is the possibility for change. This doesn't have to be a permanent reality of, of children in Gaza dying under Israeli bombs that we pay for. You know, our $3.8 billion a year of tax money, that's only the beginning every year of how much we send directly to the Israeli military. That's about one-sixth of the entire Israeli military budget. So we're definitely right in there. We're definitely culpable. We're definitely part of the problem here. It's not only about giving them permission, giving them a green light, saying Israel has the right to self-defense and that means whatever they think they have to do, they can go ahead and do it, whether or not it violates the laws of war. And in this case, it is violating all the laws of war. And as CNN has reported, Josh Paul, mm -hmm. who said he uh, was had worked at the Bureau of Political and Military Affairs for more than 11 years, said in a LinkedIn post that he was going to be resigning from his position due to a, a policy disagreement concerning our continued lethal assistance to Israel. He wrote that, let me be clear, Hamas's attack on Israel was not just a monstrosity. It was a monstrosity of monstrosities. I also believe that uh, 
potential escalations by Iran-linked groups like Hezbollah as uh, or by Iran itself would be a further cynical exploitation of the ongoing and existing tragedy. But I believe to the core of my soul that the response Israel is taking and with it the American support both for that response and for the status quo of the occupation will only lead to more and deeper suffering for both the Israeli and the Palestinian people and is not in the long-term American interest. Do you believe that that is a increasing belief within not just the Biden administration, but on the Republican Party side as well as the Democratic Party side, that this situation as it stands right now, the status quo is not sustainable? I think that there are significant differences, um, but certainly there is rising concern and increasing opposition to the so far un unconditional and uncritical levels of not only the financial support, but also political support, diplomatic support, real protection of Israel and Israeli officials in the United Nations, using the US veto to make sure that Israel is never held accountable, making sure that Israel is not held accountable, that Israeli officials, whether military or political officials, are never held accountable at the International Court of, of uh, sorry, the International Criminal Court. All of those things are increasing in the U.S. and even in official levels. I think it's different between the parties. We don't hear from the the Republican uh, opposition, which tends to be the far right of the Republican Party. We don't hear from them that they're concerned about the moral uh, challenges that. Uh, the, this latest, um, how shall we say, his the latest escapee from the State Department has identified. One might say that 11 years it took him a long time to come to this. There's been an awful lot of U.S. complicity in earlier uh, uh, parts of Israeli assaults on Gaza and elsewhere uh, that the U.S. was not just party to, but was paying for, was arming, was providing replacement arms, et cetera. Uh, but it's good that he finally made this judgment. Uh, it's very important that we're seeing this more publicly. I, I imagine there are more people in the State Department. They need to come forward. You know, it's not, it doesn't help the world for people to, ang to be anguished over what they do if they keep doing it. You know, we, we hear sometimes, for example, when, when, uh, then President Trump went to Israel in 2018 and imposed a series of incredibly extreme U.S. policies that included moving the embassy to Jerusalem in violation of a host of U.N. resolutions, uh, recognizing the illegal annexation of the Syrian Golan Heights by Israel as something that the U.S. now accepts, taking the position that the illegal Israeli settlements across the West Bank and the theft of land that went into those settlements is now apparently legal for U.S. policy. All of those kinds of policies uh, were recognized as incredibly extreme at the time, and they were condemned. And they were condemned by both candidate Joe Biden at the time and President Joe Biden in the very first days of his presidency. He said, I don't agree with this. This is not my policy. This should not be taking place. But to this day, two and a half years, more than two and a half years into his presidency, he has not changed any of them. So that's a huge problem. 
the fact that he may or may not agree with them is really of no relevance if he does nothing to change them. So I think that's where our pressure comes in, our pressure, in this case, for a ceasefire. Whether Biden thinks there should be a ceasefire, but he's not quite ready to say the words and, and deal with the what he thinks might be the, the uh, accusations that could follow, it doesn't matter what he believes. What matters is what he does. It matters what he does. So we need to keep the pressure on. There's a new resolution pending in Congress in the House. If they ever get a Speaker of the House, they can maybe debate it, uh, that will have to go forward that says it's a very simple resolution. You know, it was put forward by uh, Congresswoman Cori Bush and Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. And it basically just says, because all lives are precious, we have to stop this killing. And it calls for two very simple things, an immediate ceasefire and immediate access for humanitarian aid. It doesn't get into all the reasons of who started, which part, when did we start the clock? All of those complicated questions are not there. People can think what they want. They just have to move to do something to stop it now. Stop more people dying. Stop more children. We're going to be seeing in the next hours or days a potentially massive escalation of waterborne diseases across Gaza because there is no more clean water. And families are now having to rely on brackish water, seawater without going through desalinization, and dirty water sometimes contaminated with sewage. That's how things like cholera, things that have been wiped out in that region for years, come back. And when they come back, it's the most vulnerable who die. It's babies, it's young children, and it's the elders. And unless we want to see a, a new outbreak of these horrific diseases with no medicines available in the hospitals to treat it, with no electricity to run the equipment in the hospitals to actually function, and still no clean water, there's no way to treat these diseases. And babies and elders and others are going to die. On top of those who are already being killed on a daily basis, more than 700 yesterday, in just one day, were killed by Israeli bombing. So all of this, saying that this somehow is justified because there was a day of horror inside Israel, in the attacks of October 7th, complete violation of international law, must be condemned. People must be held accountable. And to say that killing thousands, it's now more than 5,000 civilians across Gaza who have nothing to do with those attacks is somehow legitimate because of those attacks simply reminds us of the, the lack of clarity people have, both of, of, of moral reality and of international law and human rights and all of those rights that we think that we take for granted, except when other people are involved. In your article at The Hill, you write the most recent eruption of violence in Gaza and Israel is a tragic reminder of the human consequences of decades of oppression. The human toll hundreds of Palestinians and Israelis killed so far, it's now in the thousands, tells that appalling story. Many of the targets and many of those killed on both sides were civilians, which is always forgotten during any kind of wartime, that civilians always outnumber those of combatants who are killed in any war in, since the beginning of the 20th century. Jewish Currents' Ariel Angel was on last week's show to talk about her writing on Gaza. She pointed out that for the Jewish people, hiding in our liberation myth is a recognition 
that violence will visit the oppressor society indiscriminately. What Exodus reminds us is that the dehumanization that is required to oppress and occupy another people always dehumanizes the oppressor in turn. So, Phyllis, if the continued oppression dehumanizes both the oppressor and those being oppressed, that would suggest that the violence will continue as long as the system of oppression is in place. Can oppression bring about safety and security? And if it cannot, why does the public support oppression as a means of security? Well, the answer to the first part, I would say, is is easy. The answer is no. There is no military solution. We said that during the Iraq war. We said that during the Afghanistan war. We said that, said that during the so-called global war on terror. And I have said it for decades and decades regarding Israeli occupation and Israeli apartheid against Palestinians. There is no military solution. There needs to be an end to occupation and apartheid, period, full stop. That's what international law requires. That's what human rights requires. That's what human morality requires. People should not have to live that way. You know, before the current siege that was described as a full siege where no water, no food, no electricity, no fuel will be allowed into those 2.2 million people, families, babies, elders living in Gaza, there was a siege that has been on, in, underway for 16 years that Israel began imposing back in 2007. And it's true, it wasn't as bad as what we're seeing now. Little bits of water was allowed in, little bits of electricity. It was about four to six hours a day uh, of electricity. Wasn't enough. In fact, one of the, the new statistics that I learned doing some writing just this last couple of weeks that I didn't know before. I thought I knew a lot about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, but I didn't know this little factoid that before the current crisis in, in uh, an analysis that medical analysis that went back to last year, January of, of this year, actually, that in Gaza, under the terms of the old siege that maybe wasn't so bad, we, we start to think, because of how much worse it is now, 20% of children in Gaza were stunted by the age of two because there was not sufficient good food for them to grow and thrive. There was maybe enough so that they weren't always hungry, but they were stunted in their growth because they didn't have protein. They couldn't get fresh fruits and vegetables. They couldn't get healthy food. They couldn't get what babies and children need to grow and thrive. So 20%, one out of every five babies under the age of two was already stunted. That's what occupation and apartheid look like on the receiving end. So this notion of why do people support it? It's because we're given the option as we were after 9-11. We're either going to go to war or we're going to let them get away with it. And since no one wants to let them get away with it, the choice is war. The other options, treating that horrific crime as a crime and saying this is now teaching us that we need to cooperate with all other countries around the world so we can prevent such horrors from happening in, in future years, that we have to do something different. We weren't given that option. We had a president who said that leadership meant we're going to take the world to war. 
He made sure that when the UN responded immediately with with great fervor and with a, a unanimous vote in the Security Council, where members of the of the council uh, stood to cast their votes, it was with such uh, such levels of support for the for people in the U.S. that that resolution was very carefully drawn by the U.S. so that it did not give the UN any decision making in terms of what happened next. If it, if it had wanted the UN, as is appropriate, to be in charge of the response, it would have been taken under what's known as Chapter 7. That's the, that's the, uh, the, the part of the UN Charter that gives the UN Security Council the right to go to war, to take the world to war. But the US didn't want to do that. George Bush didn't want to do that. Donald Rumsfeld didn't want to do that. Colin Powell didn't want to do that. What they wanted to do was have U.S. power with a fig leaf of U.N. authority that didn't exist. It was a lie. That was one more of the lies of that period. So we have that history of wanting to control things by going to war, wanting to answer crime by going to war. And desperately now we need a ceasefire to stop the consequences of that kind of uh, decision. This was a decision that the Israelis made, you know, kicking people out of Gaza, turning Gaza into a land without a people, something that the early Zionist settlers before the creation of the state of Israel had claimed that that's what is what Palestine already was. It was a lie. It's a lie now, but they're trying to remake it. There's a member of the Knesset who said publicly about two weeks ago, what we need is another Nakba. He used the Arabic term. Nakba is an Arabic word that means uh, uh, catastrophe, but it's the specific word that's used by Palestinians to describe what happened to them in 1947 and 48, when 750,000 Palestinians, about 75% of the population, were expelled, dispossessed of their homes, kicked out of their lands. And people were, were terribly frightened. They were either kicked out at the point of a gun, or they were afraid that the evidence of uh, of mass killings that had already taken place, massacres like in Deir Yassin and other villages where the victims, the bodies were thrown into the backs of trucks and driven around the countryside to show what would happen if you didn't leave. People were either terrified into leaving or forced to leave. And they carried with them the keys to their houses because they were so sure they'd be back in two weeks or three weeks when, the, when the, the fighting ended. And that population has never been allowed to return. The Palestinian refugees of that era make up almost 70% of the population of Gaza. So what we're hearing now from people in North Gaza, where Israeli flyers, Israeli leaflets have been dropped from Air Force bombers, they're dropping papers that say, you must leave. If you don't leave, you will be treated as a partner of the terrorists, meaning we will kill you. You must leave. You must go south where there is no safety because the south is also being bombed. There is no water. There is no electricity. There is no food. There is no place for people to safely stay. And people are saying, we went through this once. We became refugees in 1947 and 48. We're not going to do it again. We're not going to do it again. We're not going to leave. And if we get killed, better we die with dignity in our own home. 
There was that's what I'm hearing. There was an IDF spokesperson I saw in the last week saying that this was not a war against the Palestinian people. What they were trying to do was protect the IDF was trying to protect the Palestinian people from Hamas. Is it possible to separate the people in Gaza? from Hamas and in a bigger picture how much do the people in Gaza depend upon Hamas not for safety or security but for the necessities of life you know this is also something that we can look back to the US response in 9-11 the announcement was made very publicly we are not at war with the people of Iraq we are only going to war against Saddam Hussein and maybe his regime. But mostly, this is really about Saddam Hussein. We're going to war against one person. The hundreds of thousands of people that were killed in Iraq were not named Saddam Hussein. They were not in charge. It didn't matter who the supposed victim was. The violence is being wreaked against the people of Gaza. And Israeli officials can say whatever they like about this isn't aimed at the people of Gaza. It is aiming directly at the people of Gaza. The Hamas is a very complicated and large movement. It's a social movement. It's a political party and a political organization. And it's the dominant party in a government. It's a government that doesn't have much power. It never has. Uh, but it was elected in 2006, fought a brief battle with, with other Palestinians from the Fatah organized uh, Palestinian authority that now has a similarly disempowered authority in the West Bank. But in both areas, both the West Bank and in Gaza, Israeli military is who rules the day. So where does power lie? It doesn't lie with either one of the, of the governing uh, uh, structures. These are structures without actual power. But what is important is that while I think both Hamas and Fatah, the leading parties in the two governing structures in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, have lost enormous amounts of credibility and legitimacy, not least because in both cases they were elected in 2006 for four-year terms, and here it is, 13 years later, they're still in office, the same people, uh, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of problems with that 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 Palestinians have. Having said that, there's no question that the people that make up Hamas, who include a political wing, a diplomatic wing, uh, as well as a military wing, come from within the people of Gaza. And this notion that somehow uh, everybody hates Hamas is, is uh, you know, it's a figment of imagination. There is plenty of opposition to all political parties, and, and Hamas is certainly not immune from that. Uh, but the notion that somehow you can attack Hamas, which is embedded in the population because it represents and comes out of the population. Uh, it, it's in Gaza, it's living in an environment where the it's it's among the most crowded, the most two or three crowded pieces of land on earth, on earth. And what that means is that Hamas fighters, their families, they have, children, they have spouses, they have parents, they have grandparents, also live in Gaza. So they are having to face that as well. So this notion that somehow this isn't about the population, it's only about Hamas, simply is not the case. 
yes, there are fighters that, that are not civilians. Uh, and the the fighters are one part of the Hamas movement. But the notion that you can somehow identify individuals and take them out, as the language would go, and kill them without killing huge numbers of uh, of, of civilians, whether it's their families, you know, often the Israelis will bomb specific buildings. They're quite good at that. They can they can bomb buildings and not destroy the ones around them. They don't always do it, but they can do it. And they will sometimes do that saying that such and such Hamas commander lived there, which may or may not be true. If it is true, chances are pretty good that that person's family lives there too, including their children and their grandmothers. And they die too. And that's the problem. International law includes laws of war. It's the Geneva Conventions. It's what's known as international humanitarian law. And as weird as it seems that you can actually have laws about war, there are laws about war. And some of the biggest laws about war are, number one, you can't have collective punishment. You can't bomb a whole city to go after one person. That's exactly what we're seeing here. Another one is that you can't blur the difference between civilians and military, civilians and combatants. That's exactly what we're seeing here. Civilians are being bombed on an hourly basis where there is no safety. There is nowhere to go. These leaflets saying you, you should go south where it's safe. It isn't safe. They are bombing the roads south and they're bombing in the south so that the hospitals are also closing in the south because they also don't have fuel for their generators. They don't have access to the electrical grid, which has been turned off. They don't have clean water. They don't have medicines. So this notion that there's somehow this big distinction that the Israelis are waging somehow a clean war just against uh, the fighters and not against the population is simply not true. It's simply a lie. So did the wars in Iraq by the United States either justify or legitimize the kind of war that we're seeing Israel partake in now when it comes to Gaza. This is, these are the exact same things that the United States did when targeting the people of Iraq. Uh, they, uh, you know, blew up the infrastructure, which is against uh, the law, against international law. These are the same repeated patterns that we saw that the United States do in both Gulf Wars. So to what degree do you think this was legitimized by the United States, these kinds of attacks that Israel is doing right now against Gaza? There's nothing legitimate to the attacks that Israel is doing right now against Gaza. There was nothing legitimate about the US war against Iraq or again about the decade of sanctions that shredded the entire social fabric of Iraq and that was responsible for the death of more than 500,000 Iraqi children. There was nothing legitimate about that. Now, the question is whether politically that's being used as a justification for what Israel is doing now, sure, it set an example for the whole world. If you don't like what some other government is doing, allegedly to its own people, you can go to war against them. We did. Go ahead. It's kind of fun. See, see how it works. Call it shock and awe. It'll be great fireworks. It's a horrific reality that when the most powerful and wealthiest country in the history of the world 
does something that is so massively in violation of international law and any semblance of, of justice, that other countries that are not so rich, that are not so powerful, that are not so influential, feel like, hey, they did it, we can too. And when you have a country like Israel, which is supported so thoroughly and so unconditionally by the United States, where a large percentage of its military costs are paid for by the United States, why wouldn't they say that, of course, we have the right to do this? Our great power uncle has already shown us the way. We are speaking with writer, activist, and political commentator Phyllis Bennis. Uh, you can find out more about her and the Institute for Policy Studies at ips-dc.org. You write that our understanding of reality is shaped by when we start the clock. That's as far as historical context comes when it went the Israeli and Gaza conflict. So is trying to determine who started this or any conflict the best way to determine who is responsible and therefore accountable for deadly violence? Is that the best way toward peace and justice by proving who started it? Because, I mean, to me, that sounds like very playground politics. You know, it's not so much, in my view, about who started it, because what is it? You know, you could start looking at the current crisis. There is an identifiable date that this particular escalation began. That was October 7th. Well, what happened on October 7th? First, the attack from Gaza against Israel, and most of those who were killed were civilians. Completely illegal. I condemn it. It should be condemned. Those responsible should be held accountable. And it did not happen out of the blue. It did not happen in the midst of equality and peace, and everybody was happy. It happened in the context of 16 years of a crippling siege. It happened in the context of 55 years of military occupation that prohibits any kind of normal life. It happens in the context of 75 years of Israeli oppression of Palestinians. What major human rights organizations from Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch to the Israeli organizations, B'Tselem and others, all identify as apartheid, it happens in that context. Does that make it legal? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It does, however, provide us with some of the information we need if we're serious about stopping this kind of violence. If we're simply interested in condemnation, then you start whenever you want. You, you, you pick a day, you pick an hour and say, who started it on that day? And that's who I'm going to blame. If you're serious, you don't start there. You start with what are the power relations that we're looking at here? This is not Peru and Ecuador arguing over a border dispute. This is an occupied population dealing with an occupying power that is in daily violation, hourly violation of a host of international laws. And that is backed and armed and financed and protected by the most powerful country in the world. That's the power disparity we're dealing with. So we start from that, looking at what's the power disparity here? What are the two sides about? Who has power for what? The, the right of resistance for a people living under military occupation is part of international law. And 
anyone who uses that legality also has to recognize that they are bound by the same restrictions on war as any other side. Whether it's a legal use of, of military force, which is the case for a, an occupied population, or an illegal use of military force, such as the, the force used by a, uh, uh, an occupying power against the population that it's supposed to be protecting, both are subject to the restrictions of no collective punishment, no going after civilians. All of those laws apply to all sides at all times. We have to understand that too. So as we finish up today, I think what's important is to keep in mind, people are dying, we need a ceasefire. One way to get that is to support the congressional move, you know, urge members of Congress to sign on to the, to the new ceasefire resolution. It's not a bill, it's not gonna have any funding or anything else, it's simply a statement of principle that the Congress urges the administration to call for an immediate ceasefire. It should be an easy one. It should be an easy one. And it's the most important thing we can do right now is to move towards a ceasefire. Now, there were nonviolent protests within Gaza against the occupation. Protest democracies are supposed to allow. This is the way a democracy is supposed to work. You freely express your grievances and by doing so, hopefully motivate your elected leaders to uh, pressure the government to change policies. What success have Gazans had in pursuing their goals through diplomatic, even dem democratic channels that would be seen as legitimate by the Western press and by the Israeli government? Do Gazans? It's been, it's been very, it's been very clear. And in my last question, because I really do have to finish up here. Yes, it's been very clear that Israel's claim to democracy does not apply to anyone living under military occupation. When Palestinians, led by an extraordinary young poet in Gaza, announced their plan back in 2018 to launch a series of explicitly nonviolent marches within the Gaza Strip, within their own territory, towards the wall as a symbolic uh, statement of urging an end to the siege that was imprisoning them in this open-air prison, that announcement was answered by an Israeli announcement that if they did that, if they launched such, a, such an inter, a nonviolent march, they would be met with sharpshooters. And indeed they were. And over 200 people were killed over the course of the next year and a half with those weekly marches, peaceful, nonviolent marches. There were over 1,700 who were shot, mostly in the legs, of those most of them are facing the possibility that now, years later, they are going to have to have amputations because the hospitals in Gaza simply are unable to provide the kind of advanced surgery that would save their legs or their arms. There's already been 200, mostly young men. Some are children. And there's going to be hundreds more before we even talk about those injured in the current crisis. So that's how nonviolent protest has been greeted. The boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, the, the essence of nonviolent uh, protest, nonviolent pressure being brought to bear against Israel to stop its violations of international law and human rights, it's inherently nonviolent. And it has been targeted all around the, the Western world, across the US and Canada and Australia and across Europe, 
being criminalized. Here in the United States, there's 30 states that have various anti-BDS laws on the books now, criminalizing it, making it a civil crime of various sorts. This is how the nonviolent struggles of Palestinians is answered in Israel and globally. So the option of nonviolent protest has been stripped away because the answer from Israel is, it's not going to do you any good and we're not going to let you try. What people take from that is sometimes that the only option they have left is to use violence. And it's a horror. It's a horror because that doesn't work either. So what we're looking at here is the result of not just Israel's democracy, because that democracy never impacted uh, those living under military occupation. And in fact, even inside 1948 borders of, of the state of Israel, the law that was passed, the, the basic law passed in, in 2018, said very explicitly that the right of self-determination in the state of Israel belongs only to Jews. So the 21% of Israeli citizens, Israeli citizens who are Palestinians, are legally prohibited from having equal rights in their own country. So that's what, what Israeli democracy looks like. It's not surprising that that version of democracy is not one that has any hope of providing a solution to an ongoing military occupation. That's why we need a ceasefire immediately now. We have to stop the killing. Phyllis, thank you so much. I know that you're up against the clock. I really appreciate you being back on the show. It's going to be earlier than five years from now that we have you back on the show. Thanks again for being on. Your writing has been spectacular on this, and we truly appreciate all the years of support of you and the Institute for Policy Studies. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Take care. So that last question was the question from hell. I knew that she was up against the clock. I wasn't too sure how long her answer was going to be. But I did have another question from hell ready for Phyllis. And maybe I'll send it to her to see if she gives us a response. And that uh, question from hell would have been, uh, why are our options always a military solution or the bad guys will get away with it? If that, Why is that always our, our only two options when we have seen that whether it's in, well, let's go back, Vietnam, or Afghanistan, or Iraq, or Afghanistan again, or Syria, or what's happening right now within Israel, military solutions fail. The military is not efficient or effective in bringing about the diplomatic solutions that you want to have to war. Military solutions do not work and we're spending all of so much of our money here in the United States on military solutions that fail. These are poor investments if you are looking for a return on your investment, if that return is peace, security, safety, and general happiness. Good Lord. You're right. When I witness to grief, this is hell. If you learn something from our conversation with Phyllis Venice about the war in Gaza and Israel, or she made you change your view or reconsider something you never considered in the first place. If our talk with Phyllis was a reminder that all war needs to be condemned, show your appreciation for a completely commercial-free This Is Hell, providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else, giving airtime to perspectives like Phyllis's analysis and viewpoints 
you will not hear anywhere else and providing new content to you absolutely free several times every week since 1996, including nearly 10 years of free shows online that you can listen to right now at thisishell.com. Show your appreciation for all that by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Uh, either Thursday or Friday morning. Really not too sure at this point in time, but we'll tell you later on this week's show. Or you can show your support for completely listener support of This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on, you guessed it, support, where you can see all the ways you can support This Is Hell on our most recent bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. The no- neighborhood where I am sitting right now, where Will is sitting right now, where we do the show from every week, has been my and my more than a girlfriend's home for 20 years as of last weekend. Like many of our current neighbors, we were pushed out of our previous home and community by forces that were out of our control. For us, it was gentrification. For others, it's far worse factors pushing them out of their homes like war, U.S. sanctions, climate change, ethnic cleansing, settler colonialism, genocide, you name it. If it's a crime against humanity, then refugees from such calamities end up here in the neighborhood. It's why the census tract just north of where I'm sitting right now, the census tract between Warren Park and Devon Avenue, as of the 2020 census, is the most diverse in the United States. Over the 20 years we have lived here, things have changed. That's because the beauty of this community and what makes it utterly unique is it is always changing and new arrivals bring cultures from around the world, granted, often forcibly moved by tragedy, but they are shared with the neighborhood whether anybody notices or not. And a constant reminder of what the world has to offer and it's also a constant reminder of what far too many want to destroy. Also on Patreon, on the regular show last week, we talked to national security scholar and advisor and author Karen Greenberg about recent steps toward actually closing the military detention facility at Guantanamo Bay that opened only four months after 9-11 and more than 21 years later still remains. Karen has been on our show several times, so we shared an interview we did with her back in 2009 about her writing only a few months after Barack Obama was inaugurated president, leading to his first term in office. At that time, Karen was writing about the damage the Bush administration had done to the United States policies related to and record on human rights. Karen knew the Obama administration was inheriting a nightmare. However, she openly wondered if President Obama was up to the task of waking us from the terrors of the war on terror. Spoiler alert, if you heard last week's conversation with Karen, you know why President Obama did not close Gitmo despite promising to do so during the presidential campaign. And despite what a lot of Democrats will tell you, it's not all the Republicans' fault. But the only way you can hear my 20-year retrospective on a neighborhood unlike any other in Chicago or the United States for that matter, and a conversation on the end of human rights from 2009, as well as get a discount code word for all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. And you can ask a question from hell for me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, and to stay on top of everything going on behind the scenes with exclusive content only for Patreon subscribers is by, you guessed it, subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell 
Will, what is this week's question from hell and how are our listeners responding so far? This week's question from hell is how will you celebrate former President Trump's re-election in 2024? And no, that's not an endorsement, listeners. <laughs> not uh, an endorsement in any way. <laughs> um, over on Patreon, Mason W. responds, I'll borrow the old Joe Hill quote and tell everyone I know, don't mourn, organize. All right. Essential replies, lighting them if I got them. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce S. replies, as I did not know my own, or as if I did not follow my own advice when W levitated to the throne and invest in oil and water, my <laughs> advice uh, and anticipated celebration for a new flood of wealth would be invest in executive colostomy bags <laughs> and go with the flow. Wow. wow. That's All right, Bruce. That's harsh. pretty gross. Uh, yeah, right before the uh, Iraq war, I was talking to investigative journalist, uh, you know, New York Times bestselling author, Greg Pallast, and I said, you know, we all know that Halliburton's going to make a fortune, so why don't we just invest in... There's nothing we can do. Why don't we just invest in Halliburton? And he looked at me and goes, because we're not dicks. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a good... Something to live yeah, up to. <laughs> right. It's not hard. <laughs> it really isn't hard. Jeffrey T. replies to the question, how will you celebrate former President Trump's re-election in 2024? Googling who to bribe to stay out of his re-education camps. <laughs> Probably just an FOP sticker on my car, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or uh, what's the... Uh, chain of stores called in Michigan uh, Cops and Donuts, I think is what the name yeah, of the is. Yeah. Yeah. Just have one of their stickers. Uh, my nephew actually bought one of their bumper stickers so he could put it on his car so cops wouldn't pull him over. That's <laughs> he great. said it's working great. It's working out? Oh, yeah. All right. Noted. <laughs> Might have to follow suit. Uh, old Grouch replies, avoid driving in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all the Patreon so you far. You want to give us any more? Yeah, let's check out the hellhole. Yeah, we let's do that. Ten comments over there. Sweet. Leading us off, responding to the question, how will you celebrate former President Trump's re-election in 2024? Erica LG replies... By leaving the United States. Oh, all right. It's <laughs> quite Hopefully a celebration. they'll let us leave. <laughs> exactly. You think Canada's going to let us in? Right. Hell no. Mexico won't even. <laughs> they don't want us either. Um, Nick E. replies, <laughs> I'll take up arms, in quotes, I must add, um, against his many troubles and by opposing, end them. All right. All right. Um, Mike W. replies, I may start drinking again. Not just simply binging, but to cirrhosis-inducing levels <laughs> unto unconsciousness. All right, then. DTs could never be worse than seeing TFG back in office. Uh, Aaron, G, Aaron D. replies, Take in a Bleach 4 while perusing Kimberly Guilfoyle's OnlyFans page. <laughs> wow. 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 And that's, Please tell me that does not exist. I really hope not. <laughs> um, that's followed by a pretty disturbing picture of her and uh, Junior. Uh, Kobe S. replies, I will turn the alarm off and roll over. <laughs> <laughs> that's a celebration right there. Uh -huh. In hopes that what just happened was a nightmare. And when you wake up, you'll all be back to normal. <laughs> this is followed by two disturbing 
photos. I assume they've had some stuff done to them. Yeah, those are of, really disturbing. Uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle, yeah. one of which is her inhaling a cloud of cocaine behind a pile of jelly donuts. <laughs> It's ridiculous. And I don't then, know what's going on in the hellhole right now, but those images are really disturbing. Yeah, it's, it's living up to its name. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, Nick E. again replies, maybe cocaine-induced psychosis. <laughs> and then uh, Kenneth W. replies, I will never admit defeat if that happens. The only thing to celebrate would be that he can't run again. This is it. It's final. By the way, if Trump does win, why would you want to do coke? Yeah, I'd want to... I don't want to stay up No, I and think focus on it. That's when I decide to, to start my opioid addiction experiment. Exactly, exactly. Enter I would, that season of yeah, my life. Yeah, see, is there anybody who actually has real opium or hashish around? That's right. the, I'd like, knock me out. I don't want to be up for this. That's like, oh, hey, you know, Trump has uh, been reelected. I think I'll take some Adderall right now to really focus on the situation. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, what the hell is that about? Hey, I hear, you know... Start a new hellhole opium do- den, right? <laughs> the, the, the dopium den? The dopium den. <laughs> so the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins, as always, their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter or X or whatever it's called at This Is Hell Radio. Or you can post it in our Discord community community, or at our Patreon page, or just email it to us at chuckatthisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of the, this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. What is Jeff talking about during the Moment of Truth this week, Will? Jeff tries his hand at medieval Japanese form of literary coleslaw. All right. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. On October 23rd, 1946, 77 years ago this week, keep in mind, 1946, post-World War II, in Holmes County, Mississippi. Five white men were acquitted of murdering a 35-year-old African-American tenant farmer named Leon McAtee. He, who had worked for low pay on a farm owned by Jeff Dodd, one of the five white men who was being accused of killing him. During the previous summer, McAtee had been locked up by the county sheriff after Dodd had accused him of stealing a horse saddle. But four days later, Dodd had gone to the sheriff to claim that he needed McAtee to help with the farm, the, the harvest, and that he would therefore drop the charges of stealing the saddle. After the sheriff released McAtee, Dodd and four other men, including his son, had taken him to a nearby pasture where they had beaten and whipped him as his wife watched and then loaded him into a pickup truck to drive him away. Two days later, his body had been found floating in a bayou. After the five men were arrested, it was established in court that McAtee had not stolen anybody's saddle. As if whether stealing the saddle from was the deciding factor in determining whether his torture and murder was just or not. Not only that, but one of the white men actually confessed to the lynching and testified to the guilt of the other four. But Judge S.F. Davis ruled that the evidence was insufficient to prove two of the men guilty, and an all-white jury acquitted the other three after deliberating for only five 
minutes. Again, this is 1946 United States of America. That's following World War II and its alleged victory over fascism. After the Holocaust and public knowledge that Nazis executed innocent people based on their religion, race, ethnicity, nationality, sexuality, as well as systematically murdering prisoners of war, political opponents, and the disabled. And in the United States, white supremacists still did not think twice about letting admitted torturers and murderers of racially motivated homicides go free. From defeating Nazi Germany to supporting lynchings, man, the greatest generation sure is a complicated mess. Also in Rotten History, on October 24th, 1971, 52 years ago this week, during a football game at Tiger Stadium in Detroit, the Chicago Bears led the Detroit Lions 28-23 in the fourth quarter with just over a minute left to play. The Chicago Bears were covering that day, and there's a reason I know why. The Lions had the ball, and their quarterback, Greg Landry, had just completed a 34-yard pass to wide receiver Chuck Hughes for a first down. I know they're recovering because my dad was at that game in the crowd with his best friend, who was also his bookie, and was very upset that my dad was going to be cashing in a pretty big ticket. Moments after the very next play, Hughes fell to the ground and went into convulsions. He was carried off the field and rushed to Detroit's Henry Ford Hospital, and the game continued, naturally. But shortly after the Bears won, it was announced that Chuck Hughes was dead of a heart attack at the age of 28. An autopsy would reveal major blockage in his coronary arteries. It was a problem that ran in his family, and it should have explained the sporadic chest pains and other symptoms he had been experiencing ever since the preseason that he was telling his doctors over at Ford Hospital. Hughes' widow would sue Henry Ford Hospital for $21.5 million for not having diagnosed the problem sooner and would settle out of court. Chuck Hughes remains the only player in NFL history to die on the field during a game. But Chuck Hughes did not die from an injury sustained on the field. No player in, an, no player in uh, NFL history has ever died during a game from injuries sustained on the field. Died on the field from injuries sustained on the field. However, infielder Ray Chapman did die from being hit in the head with a pitch during a Major League Baseball game. Chapman, again, did not die on the field. He would pass away from the injuries 12 hours later in a nearby hospital. Now i got to look up if the National Hockey League or National Basketball Association or even soccer internationally has ever actually had somebody die on the field from something that happened during play. So I guess I'll be busy this weekend. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Will, who is our next guest here on This Is Hell? Coming up is columnist Mark Weisbrot, who recently posted the Center for Economic Policy and Research article, Ecuador's election could have lasting consequences which was originally published at Common Dreams. Uh, also, uh, we'll have again the Jeff, Jeff Dorchin with the Moment of Truth. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Vote 
for This Is Hell in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Readers Poll at chicagoreader.com slash best under the City Life category where you can find vote for This Is Hell as best podcast and me, Chuck Mertz, as best radio DJ. That's chicagoreader.com slash best. Then go to City Life and vote for This Is Hell as best podcast. And me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz, as best radio DJ. We need your help this year more than ever. Radio is dominated by a very few, very powerful corporations. Podcasting is big business, which means whether you know it or not, many of the podcasts you listen to and other online influencers have marketing teams behind them with advertising executives and public relations firms all connected to and benefiting the 1%. That's how those shows and podcasts get huge. We have none of that corporate support. In fact, there's a lot of corporate opposition to our show. We have been and always will be completely listener-supported without any connection to the media industry or any corporation. In fact, over the weekend, yet again, we had the maker of some lousy product contact us and ask if they could advertise on the show. Like everyone else who has ever asked, we told them no. We are completely listener-supported and will never take any money from any advertiser or a greenwashing grant from some conglomerate or multinational. We are thoroughly independent without any conflict of interest ever, and we are doing everything we can to keep it that way. So, while you are at chicagoreader.com slash best, voting for This Is Hell as best podcast, and me, Chuck Mertz, as best radio DJ under the City Life category, Please show some love for Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. Yes, there are only two categories under City Life to vote for This Is Hell and Me, Best Podcast and Best Radio DJ. But there are three places where you can vote for Carrie's Lounge. You can vote for Carrie's under Food and Drink for Best Beer Garden and under Music and Nightlife for Best Neighborhood Bar and best dive bar and i can promise you it is the best dive bar i have been in a lot of dive bars and wow they don't deserve the name because they're beneath a dive they're like going into the crust of the earth but an actual dive bar that's carrie's lounge that's chicagoreader.com slash best vote under the category city life for this is hell is best podcast and me chuck mertz for best radio DJ and vote for Carrie's Lounge under food and drink for best beer garden and under the music and nightlife category for best neighborhood bar and best dive bar. Voting is only open until November 7th, so vote early, vote often for This Is Hell, Chuck Mertz, and Carrie's Lounge at chicagoreader.com slash best. And join us every Wednesday evening, including this Wednesday evening, for This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think, which happens Wednesday evenings, beginning around 6 p.m., goes till about uh, 10 o'clock at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, and we hope to see you there this week. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. 
Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.